Have you ever heard of the term sharenting? It's where parents overshare information about their kids, usually online. We're going to be talking about sharenting with guest expert Leah Plunkett, coming up. Welcome to the Unplug and Plug In podcast for parents, where we explore your relationship with technology, as well as how to help your child develop a healthy relationship with tech and screens, and most importantly, you. I'm your host, Lisa Honnold, and I'm founder and director of the Center for Online Safety. Thanks for plugging in with me today. I'm excited to have Leah Plunkett as my guest. Let me tell you a little bit about Leah. Leah is an author, lawyer, and mom of two young kids. Leah's book is called Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online, and it was one of Wired's must-read books for fall 2019. The New Yorker praised Leah for envisioning scenarios that seem both far-fetched and when you think more deeply about the direction of technological innovation, a bit inevitable for how our tech choices impact our kids now and in the future. Leah is an honors graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School and brings her cutting edge legal expertise and background as an improv comedian to her work. You already fascinate me, Leah, welcome. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Lisa. I'm delighted to be with you today. Before we dive into our topic of parents and oversharing, I wanna hear a little bit more about how you got into this. You've written a book, you're an attorney and a mom, How did you become passionate about this topic? It's like the eagle arms pose in yoga. Imagine two arms wrapping around each other, Lisa. And one arm for me was my lawyer background. I was a legal aid lawyer early in my career, and I represented kids and teenagers. And so I became very professionally interested in our kids' lives from a legal perspective. And then a few years after graduating from law school, I also became a mom myself. I now have two kids, ages 10 and under, plus a couple of animals. And in my own life, I was trying to figure out how should I share or not share information about them digitally? Because of course, I'm the, you know, I will date myself here and say I'm the tail end of Gen X. So I did not grow up digital, but I certainly have an abundance of digital technology in my life as a parent. And I was trying to make sense of those two arms, if you will, coming together and get my arms around what it means to understand kids' legal rights or maybe not legally protected rights, but what we might think of as ethical or practical rights in the digital age. I love that. I love that because you're working as a parent and an attorney and you're able to see into the future a little bit about what some of the hiccups are or what what could happen. It's really hard to look ahead and do that. Can you give me a few examples of what's going on right now, how parents are oversharing online and may not even realize it? Absolutely. And I will say that the book I wrote and the research I engage in is very much in the spirit of I'm trying to figure this out too, not I think I have all the answers, so please listen to me, but we're all in this together. So when I talk and write about sharenting, I am talking about all the ways that parents, as well as grandparents and others, transmit kids' digital information online. 
And that can actually take a huge range of forms. The perhaps most straightforward one is social media. All of us parents, myself included, are very proud of our kids. Sometimes we're also frustrated by them and a whole range of emotions in between. And we often, especially in pandemic life, go to digital technologies to share a cute photo or ask for help or join a Facebook group where we can commiserate. But Lisa, when we do that, we are unintentionally exposing our kids' private information, both in terms of the content of what we might say. So if our child is having trouble going to sleep or having trouble with toilet training, things that may be private in terms of content, if we're posting that online, even if it's in the spirit of looking for help, which is totally understandable, we are opening them up to an outside gaze. Because of course, even if we think a Facebook group might be private or our social media settings are set to private, information that goes out online seldom stays where it's intended. And also we don't tend to have good or even any insight into what might be happening behind the scenes with our kids' information. So in addition to the other people who might be seeing the content of what we're posting, a picture, for instance, or a request for help, we are not aware of what companies and the third parties with whom they may be working, or even other third parties down the line, like a data broker who might gain access to information, what they might do with it. So social media is a big one. But we should not overlook all the ways that technologies that we have in our homes pick up information about our kids that we might not even realize. So our smart thermostat, our smart TV, our doorbell camera, all of these things are also grabbing data about our kids and transmitting it digitally. That's sharenting. And last but certainly not least in pandemic mode, most of our kids have done some or all remote school or hybrid school over this past year. And we as their parents are giving them iPads, laptops, other devices, if we're fortunate enough to be able to afford those devices and have reliable internet for which our kids can use them. So I think that we are also in those devices and in the programs themselves that our schools might be using, sometimes oversharing information with other people who might be in those same classrooms or again, behind the scenes for different products or services. You have opened such a can of worms. I could take this so many different directions. You're going to have to come back and talk more about the school aspect because I work with schools and I work with parents and I'm asking parents to ask good questions of schools because right now parents are assuming so much about what schools are doing and that they have the insight to all of the apps that they're using and um, understand what the privacy is for those apps. And realistically, that's not always the case. So I'm asking parents to ask the questions because we can't just assume. So you got to come back and talk about that. I want to go back to, yes, uh, I want to go back to social media and the idea that we don't know how the information uh, is going to be used, received, screenshotted. That's one that's huge with my teenagers is, oh my gosh, I didn't know this person was going to take this private information screenshot it and there it is for everybody to see. Uh, but honestly, social media companies, 
don't know. They have little glitches where all of a sudden a private account goes public and whoopsie, there it is. It's out there for everyone. So there's so much to this topic. And and why are we why are we trusting that just because our account is private is going to stay private? Then smartphones, smart TVs, all of the other things that you mentioned, the baby monitors, like all the other things, that's a that's huge. Huge. Mm-hmm. Um Look ahead and tell me what some of the dangers and long-term risks are with all of this oversharing. I put long-term dangers and risks into three categories. It's the law nerd in me. I like to categorize. The first category would be those potential harms that are criminal or unlawful or dangerous. And this is the smallest category, but it's the one that might captivate our, our minds or our worries the most. And those would be, Lisa, somebody who is intent on doing harm to your child, figuring out where your child lives because you have given away your address or a an identity thief who is trying to open fraudulent credit and combines information that you have shared about your child's full name and exact date and place of birth or address with unfortunately information like social security numbers that can be available through the dark web or other illicit channels. So that first category would be the really kind of dangerous, disturbing stuff that fortunately is the smallest part of of the spectrum here. The next would be those things that I would see as not certainly not criminal, not clearly unlawful, but just a little bit uncomfortable and suspect. And Lisa, in that category, I would put activities like third-party data brokers, acquiring information about kids, folding it into lists or selects a subset of a list, which can then be sold to folks who want to learn more about, let's say, 14 and 15-year-old girls in need of family planning services. I'm not making this up. There was a study done by CLIP, the Center on Law and Information Policy at Fordham Law School a couple of years ago that looked at data brokers, about a dozen of them, that had information about kids, some as young as two or three years, available for sale commercially in terms of these lists that were broken up into different identity attributes. And that kind of private information being sold in essentially a consumer credit-like fashion, but about our children with very, very little legal and regulatory oversight is something I find very disconcerting. Is it unlawful? Not necessarily. We don't have the best laws around it. But can that information be used then by gatekeepers for opportunities in the future that wind up deciding to do a deep dive into data analytics around things like insurance opportunities or employment and so on? Yes, it could. And when we have certain types of gatekeepers making decisions, like if if a decision is being made about you, let's say, for a consumer credit product, there will be laws that that do start to apply. But there's a lot of places where the laws around things like third-party data brokers themselves, not very strong. And then the last category is what I think of as sense of self or reputation. So if my first two categories were concerned about danger in the first category, second, not 
dangerous, but kind of icky or uncomfortable and maybe a little disrespectful. My third category of concern is just about how kids and teens themselves come to understand themselves and come to understand their ability to decide who they are going forward. It is very different to come of age and have the opportunity to move to a new town and reinvent yourself or go off to college or start a new job and get to introduce yourself again to people for the person that you believe you are at that current moment. It is a lot harder if you turn 12, 13, 14, Google yourself and find, oh my goodness, there's a whole treasure trove of information about me going back to when I was three that other people can have access to. And I think on a psychological and experiential level, that is difficult for our kids and teens as they get older and try to carve out their own sense of private identity. I see that. I love that you have three buckets or three types of information. It, it totally makes sense. There's the criminal piece. There's the creepy. So criminal is danger. There's the creepy third-party data broker where we're not sure how they're going to use the information, but we feel instinctively in our guts as parents that it's not good. Right. And then there's the reputation or the self-identity that kids may not get to create for themselves since there's already so much information out there. How do I escape that picture that I don't want it to see or the description that mom said one time. How do I escape that? Totally makes sense. What advice would you give to parents that uh, may recognize themselves in some of these situations? What advice would you give? I know that there's a whole book on this. Go get the book. But what advice would you give in a couple of minutes? I would say the best advice I have is for parents like me who are old enough to remember when people would send out old fashioned holiday cards with old fashioned holiday update letters. My grandmother always would certainly. If you would put the information that you are about to post on social media in an old fashioned holiday letter and type it up and send it to hundreds of people, everyone from your great aunt to your boss, it is probably okay to put it online. I still think that, you know, you might want to then gut check yourself a little bit further about why am I sharing this? Is this really to benefit my child or my family? Or is it more that I've just kind of fallen into a social media rabbit hole and I'm just clicking and I can't get out, which is, I think, a whole other topic of conversation, right? <laughs> the way these devices pull us in, myself included, regardless of whether we're engaging in sharenting or something else. But that kind of basic holiday card rule of thumb. At the broad brush level, is this something that is really kind of fit for pretty public consumption? So-and-so graduated from high school. Well, that's the kind of information that it used to be in the local newspaper when we had local newspapers, or so-and-so won an award at graduation. Again, pretty innocuous and pretty publicly available already. So I think that that's one way of thinking about it. The other piece of advice I would have that gets more at what might be happening behind the scenes, it is impossible for anyone, including, and I will confess to this, you know, I'm a privacy nerd, I'm a lawyer, I research this space. When I am engaged with my professional hat, whether as a researcher or as a higher ed administrator, am I reading every last clause of the fine print of a product or service I'm looking at, either because I want to write about it or because I'm thinking about using it in a school? Absolutely. Run it down to the, you know, the very, very fine print. 
as a parent, <laughs> even though I'm a total privacy nerd? Do I read the terms and conditions of service or the privacy policy for every app or device or piece of software my kids or my family has? No, because I wouldn't be able to do my job or anything else. So what I do in my personal life, instead of trying to read all of the fine print, which by the way, even if you did read it, would inevitably have loopholes so big you could drive a truck through them. We won't share your information unless it's to improve our product. We won't share your information unless it's with a part, you know, a party we have an agreement with. Who are those parties? We're not going to tell you. So what I do is a different rule of thumb, which is, can I do this in a low tech or no tech way? And if I can, I do. If I can't, then I just kind of say, you know what? Some amount of information is going to get out. I it's inevitable at this point, the way our society and our legal system is structured. And if I care enough in a real kind of values-based way to want my child or my family to engage in that activity, I'm probably just going to click accept and I can make this more concrete. So after I published Sharon Hood, I started keeping a running list of all of the new digital things for families that came out after the book was published. One of them was the smart diaper. So there were diapers on the market that can tell you using a, a sensor-enabled system if the diaper is wet and needs to be changed. And that's one where I would say, can you do this in a low-tech or a no-tech way? Probably. As someone who changed a lot of diapers without any technology involved, right? I think you can do this in a low-tech or no-tech way. So do I really need to have a company involved in collecting biometric data about my child? No. I can change diapers without smart diapers. Although, side note, interestingly, I once gave that example at a book talk back in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'm from, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, I'm a pediatric urologist. I actually think smart diapers could be very helpful for some of my patients where I'm really trying to monitor urine output. And I said, okay, but that, totally agree with you, defer to your medical judgment, but that actually in some ways makes my point. You can't really do that in a low-tech or a no-tech way. If you are trying to track urine output for a sick baby or toddler, by all means, whatever you need to do to make that work. But for a mercifully healthy child, can you do a little tushy pat and see if the diaper needs to be changed? Probably. But then to give an example of something that is harder, if not impossible, to do in a low-tech or no-tech sort of way, let's just look at the last year plus of pandemic living. If for those of us who were fortunate enough to be able to stay safe in our homes and work, to have internet access, to afford devices, was there a way around using FaceTime, Zoom, Skype, whatever it is, to talk to relatives or friends that one could not see when we were quarantining or staying separate, and in some cases still are for various reasons? No, there really wasn't. And so my did my kids FaceTime and Zoom and do all of those things with grandparents and aunts and uncles and absolutely. And at that point, you just kind of have to hope, Lisa, that the tech companies are going to be good corporate citizens, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. And that's a great segue into another topic that once parents understand, okay, I, I want to cut back on what I'm using, what I'm saying out loud on social media, or how I'm using these devices and, and the internet world, uh, what's the conversation that they need to have with relatives who may not be on board? I'm thinking proud grandparents and aunties and all of the people who are so excited to, to share. 
That is such a tricky one. So I would compare digital citizenship and digital safety for your family to being a little bit like a food allergy or a food restriction conversation. So trying to create a norm of normalizing, saying to a relative, the same way you would absolutely say if your child had a walnut allergy, please make sure there are no walnuts in that. Can I check that before you serve it? And and you would just do that because you need to keep your kid physically safe. I would encourage parents to really get into the mindset of this is a walnut conversation. So if you have decided with a partner, if you have one, totally fine, of course, if you don't, but whoever is decision-making as a parent or um, parents for a child, if you've decided, you know what, we don't want a birth date online. We don't want pictures of our kids if they're not fully dressed, even if they're cute in a swimsuit, right? Really trying to, to own that it can be uncomfortable, but would you force yourself through the discomfort to tell grandma no chocolate chip cookies if they have walnuts? Absolutely. So force yourself through the discomfort of grandma, it's, it's great everyone's out in the sprinkler, pictures and swimsuits don't go on social media, which is one of my household rules. I want Partially, I want my kids to learn that from a very early age. So mm. as they get older, hopefully they will understand that we do not take pictures unless we have all of our clothes on. And it will likely take a little more time possibly to explain to grandma or grandpa if, if he's made the cookies that this is a walnut moment. Um, and that makes sense, right? Because as I said, I'm, I'm tail end of Gen X. I didn't grow up digital. You know, boomers and generations above certainly didn't grow up digital. And so I think for parents to have patience and to think about using this podcast or a similar discussion or similar resource as a jumping off point to say, you know, unfortunately, with the world we live in, where so much private information does get out online and can be misused or used in unforeseen ways, this is a family safety conversation. So grandma, grandpa, think about this, like we're having a conversation about walnuts and please respect our preference that you don't post X, Y, or Z, whatever it is for you. People draw the line in very different ways. Leah, that's brilliant to use the analogy that everyone understands at this point about some sort of a food allergy. Let's have a walnut conversation here. This is, uh, it boggles the mind for older generations because they didn't have to think I'm Gen X too. We didn't grow up this way and it's new and it can seem weird. However, because our kids' safety is so important, it is worth pushing through and having uncomfortable conversations. I love that point. Thank you. Um, I want to switch gears a bit. Actually, our final question, oh my goodness, our final question is a two-parter. And that is something I love to ask everyone. That is, what are you unplugging from intentionally? And what are you plugging into? I love that question. And I am trying to unplug from not a particular app or device, but certain times of day. So for me, Lisa, I find that that period after dinner, the kids haven't gone to bed yet, but we're kind of trying to get them to bed. That can be a period of time where I am also thinking ahead to what do I need to wrap up before I can go to bed? 
or what do I need to line up so that it will be ready tomorrow morning? And so I can find myself in this position of standing there, you know, watching the kids brush their teeth and I'm on my phone and I'm, you know, confirming this, you know, online music lesson or texting somebody about what we're going to do for school the next day or even checking my work email to see, did that meeting get scheduled for 8.30 a.m. or not? All things that I need to do at some point, but when I'm doing them from my phone, standing in the hallway, trying to get the kids to brush their teeth and go to bed, nobody is winning. I'm not actually being that much more efficient. I'm probably being less efficient because I'm tired. I should not be trusted with my calendar, (laughs) you know, during those hours of like 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. I'm fine before and after. And my kids aren't really winning either because what they're seeing is me kind of frustrated, not necessarily with them, but just with you know, the world standing there kind of looking at my screen hunched over. So I'm trying to unplug from unnecessary phone time between that kind of kids are home from school and getting them to bed. I don't think that is serving me or them. And I don't think the communications I have during that time are actually that effective. So that is a big one for me. In terms of what I'm plugging into, I actually just started doing some work on uh breath coaching. So a wonderful, absolutely wonderful fitness instructor here in Concord, New Hampshire, with whom I've worked for a long, long time, has gotten into breath work. And I signed on to do a 10-week breath work course with her. And I am plugging into spending some time every day just breathing and then holding myself accountable for doing that and going through that that process with her. So um, I'm a couple of weeks in now and I am really, really enjoying it and feeling its benefits just throughout the day. So I I don't know what it says about me (laughs) as an individual or about our culture as a whole that I truly do need coaching to be able to breathe right now, but um, it is really helping. So I, I um, I hope everybody who's listening has something fun that they can plug into that takes them either inward or outward, but just not further into a screen. Me too. I love that you're practicing breath work. It's something that can rub off on your family as well. And I'm with you on the temptation to multitask, right? Especially right before bed, you just want to get into bed too. It's so easy to do that instead of send them off to bed intentionally and either table it for later or do it first thing in the morning. I am with you 100%. I'm glad to hear that you're working on unplugging from that and plugging into what I would call grounding, just being present in the breath. Sounds really good. Leah, this has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate your time today and I look forward to more conversations. Thank you, Lisa.